Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. We wish to warn listeners that this next episode contains details surrounding the disappearance and tragic murder of a young child, the details to which some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. There are many rewarding moments in a police officer's career, but none more so, I believe, than having a murderer convicted of their crime when the victim was an innocent young child. Knowing that you have brought some closure to a family, fighting with the emotions and feelings of such a crime over many years, is both comforting and an honour to know that you and your team have secured justice for your victim. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Let's talk about another very high-profile case, which um, just the longevity of this matter is is one of the most um, standout features of this one. And this is young Ricky Neve, uh, the murder of a six-year-old young man um, back in 1994. I think it's safe to say this is one of the most extraordinary cases and most extraordinary stories that I've ever been involved in in more than 30 years as a journalist. Six-year-old Ricky was found strangled near his home. He was just six, but the mystery of who murdered Ricky Neve has lasted 27 years. Quite uh, a challenging and heartbreaking investigation because over a long period of time you've got family that want answers, want somebody held accountable, want to be able to grieve, and they need to really do that once they get closure and finalisation. That in some instances does take time to come and this was one of those investigations which has been heavily reported on and, and you've had an awful lot to do with this investigation tell us more yeah so so in i mean it's a terrible terrible um set of circumstances ollie so in 1994 six-year-old ricky neve lived on the the welling Strait in uh, peterborough uh, um, uh, he lived with his mum, Ruth Neve, uh, and his siblings, uh, his sisters, Rebecca, Rochelle and Sheridan. And he uh, he was known to social services in Cambridgeshire. Uh, the Welland estate was sort of, you know, quite a, a deprived estate, lots of low-level criminality. Um, and on the 28th of November in 1994, um, six-year-old Ricky Neve 
um, ate his breakfast, um, put his clothes on and walked to school. He walked to school, six-year-old boy walked to school on his own. That was the sort of like accepting at that time, which was quite different from probably what other people would expect. Mm. And um, so he went to school, but never come home. And um, it, it got to about 6 p.m. that day and his mother, uh, Ruth Neve, um, calls the police. Um, so she calls the police. Go ahead, call the police. Um, my son hasn't come back from school yet. Pardon? I said I'm reporting my son missing. He hasn't been back from school. Right. Well, I haven't seen him since this morning. Okay, what's your name, please? Mrs. Ruth, I'm Neve. The police respond quite quickly. Um, uh, they sort of turn up uh, her address. Um, uh, and, you know, the, a search continues and, and you know, the, the, the normal sort of, you know, missing from home inquiry. They search the house. They look for him. They make inquiries. They ask her questions. Ruth Neve at that time was, was, was known to the police. She was involved in sort of low-level criminality. Um but they do a search of the estate, do a search of the, the, the wooded area nearby, um, and they don't find anything. And then they, it's a cold, dark, wet night. Um, they leave the, 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 the location, return early the next day and continue the search. The next day, there's a search in the wooded area, around um, about 12 o'clock, um, they find the naked body of six-year-old Ricky Neve. Um, in the woods, um, uh, and he's laid out in a sort of a Trovian man pose, you know, with his arms and and and, and legs, uh, uh, you know, in in a particular pose. No, his clothing nowhere to be seen. So a murder investigation is launched in 1994. Um, this would have been a sort of category A plus high profile murder. This was about a year after the the tragic Jamie Bulger murder in in Liverpool. Big, big murder um, investigation, lots of uh, focus um, on what had happened, um, lots of media. Um, and um, and at that time, unfortunately, there was a lot of focus on on the mother, Ruth Neve. You know, the focus was that she, um, you know, she wasn't, you know, the suggestion was that she wasn't a particularly great mother and that you know, there was lots of community intelligence coming in. The police focused their inquiries on her. Um, she was then charged with child cruelty and later charged with Ricky's murder. Uh, such his clothes were found in a wheelie bin a little while away. And the hypothesis by the police, the sort of thought processes by the police at the time, is that is that you know lots of people have come forward and, and said Ruth Neva said all sorts of things about that she you know wanted to kill her son and she'd been committed child cruelty so Ruth is um, effectively charged with um, Ricky's murder and the hypothesis uh, the thought process around this is that you know during the police search is that they found through crime books they've also found pictures of books of the occult and um, the, the police thought was that you know she was involved in in occult and black magic is that she killed Ricky that she that when she'd um, she called the police, that um, she'd hidden his body upstairs um, uh, in in under the bed somewhere, albeit the police searched the area. And then, as the police left that night, she then put him in a pushchair, wheeled him to the wooded area where his body was subsequently found, stripped him and posed him in a sort of occult black magic uh, ritual, so to speak. And, and that was their thought process with regards to. Wow. Ruth Neve, and and you know sadly as well that time uh, Ollie is that you know the media there was a media frenzy with Ruth Neve about you know you know one of the most evil mothers uh, across the UK that you know that she was like right party to this and so so she went on trial at Northampton Crown Court in 1996 and she was found not guilty on the murder. But she pleaded guilty to the child cruelty and the judge gave her a seven year sentence, which was a very, very uh, strong sentence for the, you know, the, the nature of the offences that she was alleged to have pleaded guilty to. Why did you hurt your children? 
I didn't hurt my children. We're going to come back. Not into respect of that. And at the end of the day, I'm sorry, but this is about murdering my son, not the neglect. And neglect will deal with it at a later date. Thank you. But Ruth, at the end of the trial, you admitted what the judge later called some of the worst child I had, I had no choice but to plead guilty because the prosecution turned around and said, at the end of the day, you either get found guilty without the neglect or get found guilty with neglect on the murder. I had no choice. So, so the, the case remained unsolved at that time. Um, you know, the, the, the constabulary at the time made it very, very clear that they were not looking for anybody else involved in the investigation, you know, so, you know, people could read into that in terms of, you know, what happened if the jury got it wrong, etc. So that the investigation remained unsolved for a number of years. Um, and, and it was very, very clear that, you know, the sort of like the thought process, I think, within Cambridge Constabulary and, and certainly Peterborough is that, you know, Ruth Neve probably did it, um, but she wasn't convicted of it. Uh, and there was all sorts of things that followed on from the inquiry. There was a big inquiry in terms of social services around how could this happen? How could Ricky Neve have been treated, you know, been left with this family in a particular way? Uh, uh, and so there was a massive, massive impact that went all the way through, really. Um, but I think the things to sort of like, sort of just focus on, I guess, really, and I always say this to people, is that, you know, in 1994, how murders and major crime was dealt with was very, very different from today's standards very very different it was very much led by a uh, a senior investigating officer who brought their team with with them they didn't have dedicated homicide squads or murder squads they didn't have the benefit of you know the training that we have today they didn't have the sort of benefits of forensics uh, and you know in 1994 they probably would have been quite a lot of pressure you know in terms of on the force to sort of resolve this so what happened from there onwards is that there were a number of superficial reviews that were undertaken with this unsolved murder in 2013 and 14. At the time, I was a detective superintendent, head of the major crime unit for Cambridgeshire, Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire. Uh, and I remember that there'd been a number of these sort of reviews and effectively it sort of said that, you know, there was no change. There was no reason to open this investigation. There was nothing to, to take it forward. Uh, and I remember the family uh, this time had started sort of, you know, uh, campaigning for the case to be reopened. Uh, and uh, and they asked to meet me uh, and I agreed to meet them. Uh, and I remember in 2014 meeting them at Parkside Police Station in, in Cambridgeshire. And they were very distrustful of the police, very distrustful. By the time I turned up, they'd already sort of Googled who I was to sort of make sure I wasn't involved in the original investigation. Um, and. We went for a conversation. They talked about their expectations. They showed me uh, a variety of paperwork. Uh, and then and there, I agreed to sort of undertake a, 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 an objective, independent review, uh, a far more co comprehensive review that had ever uh, taken place before, really. Um, and that's what we did. And then from there onwards till 2015, um, we decided, or well, I decided, to reopen the uh, the inquiry and it was quite interesting really because that you know there were lots and lots of people in the constabulary that were sort of saying to me why would you want to open this is that you know this 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 woman uh, was more than likely responsible what what rationale for it uh, and but what become very very clear is that when we did the review um is that is that we found things that you know that, that caused more questions and answers and, I, and i'd always been sort of drilled into me as a, as a young detective, as many detectives were in, in terms of the, the sort of ABC methodology, assume nothing, believe nobody and check everything. Uh, and, and that's what we did. And, and, I, and I remember looking at this particular case and there were things like, you know, lines of inquiry had not been followed up. There were forensics that had not been advanced uh, and there was stuff that had happened that, you know, there was, there was a particular soil scientist that had never been contacted um, because the, the police at the time didn't think it was particularly helpful to their case. And so for me, it was a very, very clear case that we were going to we we're going to open up uh, this inquiry. You know, the sightings were inconsistent. Lines of inquiry were different. There were different charging standards from 1994 to 2014. You know, the pathologist at the time um, had sort of said that, you know, 
um, at the time he thought it could be a, a ritual killing, but now actually with more experience it could potentially be sexual. The times of death was inconsistent with, you know, when young Ricky had eaten his Weetabix in terms of when his body was found. You know, so it was a, for me it was a, it was an absolute, you know, no-brainer that we needed to open it up and, and, and look at it again. And that's what we did. And so in 2015, we relaunched the investigation. By that time, we'd identified about 20 or 30 people that we wanted to speak to again. Uh, we did the normal thing that we would do in a, in a case like this. We set up a goal group. Um, I was what they call the, the sort of pit for strategic investigator. Uh, and then we had some uh, pit through a senior investigating officer. Uh, we were working with key partners around what we needed to do. Um, we introduced family liaison officers into the into the into the knee family who were you know were very still very distrustful of the of the police understandably um, and we put it into other family members and we launched this investigation and, and straight away we were faced with challenges from the media around you know why would you want to do this when this woman Ruth knee is more than likely responsible even the media had a very very strong view towards the the, the knees which you know, proved not to be the case uh, as it moved on. Ex-officers that had been involved in the original investigation in 1994 were declining to get involved with us. You know, so there were lots of challenges. And then and then the biggest challenge, and, and you will sort of know what this means, is that is that as we launched the inquiry, we realised and, and discovered that a lot of the key exhibits had either been destroyed or damaged and we had no exhibits. Uh, so, you know, we talked about that we were going to use new forensic techniques and this is what we're going to do. And everything had been destroyed, which was just, you know, really um, catastrophic from a sort of investigation perspective uh, as such. But as things happen, Ollie, and, and, you know, what we do in, with these things is that, you know, I had a fantastic team of, of uh, investigators uh, and they really were a brilliant team. You know, every one of them, were, were, were um, you know, had their own particular role in this, is that we just left no stone unturned. Uh, and we did we did what we, we normally do with cold case investigations. We went back to the forensic archives. Uh, uh, and in the forensic archives, back in the 90s, is scenes of crime officers or crime scene investigators. Um, they used to take sellotape tapings of clothing and uh, they used to do it for matching fibres, not for DNA, but for matching fibres. And we managed to discover the case papers for the original Ricky Neve murder. And within there were sellotape tapings, uh, which was an absolute stroke wow. of luck. Absolutely. And, and, and off the back of that, we were able to um, uh, advance those sellotape tapings from a forensic perspective using the latest forensic techniques and we were able to extract DNA and um, and it was so finite that it didn't straight away come back and identify somebody but identified that there was something there that we needed to keep looking so you know over a number of weeks we were working it through and then we got a hit that there was um, somebody of interest linked to the DNA and it was a guy called James Watson. Cambridgeshire Police are re-examining the evidence against 13-year-old James Watson after he emerged as a person of interest. Now, James Watson was one of the 20 or 30-odd people that we wanted to re-interview, uh, and he was one of the last people to be seen uh, with, well, one of the last people to be seen with Ricky Neve in 1994. But the original investigation had discounted him very, very early because he was a 13-year-old boy and because of the account that he'd given as such. So our focus started looking at James Watson, albeit we had to keep an open mind. We need to make sure we didn't make the same mistakes as the original investigation. Uh, and, and and that's what we did, really. So we our investigation continued. Um, we moved forward in terms of making sure that we could prove or disprove all the other people in there because we just couldn't we couldn't afford to make the same mistakes as as the original case. And the way that we investigate, Ollie, in this case, is that we investigate as if the murder had occurred yesterday. And, and we also had to look at the original investigation to see if there was anything in there that, you know, that, that had been that was of relevance that could take us further forward, really. So investigation continued through to 2015. We're involved in lots of 
uh, other inquiries and linked inquiries. Uh, and, um, and as we looked at James Watson, you know, we discovered that this was an individual who was a troubling individual. He was 13 years of age in 1994. He lived in a care home at that time. Um, he was a troubled child. Um, and, you know, there, as things went on, there was a history of him committing sexual offences in, in terms of indecent assault um, and arson and other things. And the more inquiries we made, there was other things that we discovered around, you know, he'd made a declaration to his mother around hearing about a dead bo baby boy being found dead. Uh, you know, this was days before Ricky Neve was, was, was murdered. Um, the school uh, that he attended had reported to the police that he had an unhealthy interest in the Ricky Neve case. Um, you know, had photocopies of newspapers and clippings and, and things along the line. Um, and we even interviewed, you know, previous partners of James Watson. James Watson declared himself as a gay man, but when he was a young, in his younger age, he'd effectively said he had a sexual relationship with a with a lady, and she sort of declared that, you know, when they had sexual intercourse, that he would strangle her. Of course, the the cause of death for Ricky and Eve was strangulation, and he would lay dead animals out. He would he would kill dead animals and lay them out. You know, and and so very, very quickly, you know, we were very much realising that, you know, our other people of interest were being discarded is that James Watson was was uh, now our suspect. So we worked with the Crown Prosecution Service at that time. Um, we did the normal thing in terms of making sure they were fully involved all the way through. Um, and we arrested uh, James Watson, brought him in for questioning, um, tried to get an account from him, um, and uh, he he effectively went no comment, albeit he couldn't help himself and, and, and started to give an account. Um, when he was asked about the DNA uh, uh, on Ricky Neve's clothes, he effectively gave some account around lifting young Ricky uh, up over a fence in his original police account he'd sort of said I've you know never been anywhere near him. I remember bumping into Ricky having a chat with him picking up the fence you know walking around and then we left but the fine nitty-gritty details of how long the conversation was what it involved I honestly can't remember I don't know. Why do you remember that bit then the picking him up like you say though getting around in the fence to picking him up why do you remember that, but not other little bits? What was so significant about that? Um, because that was just literally two or three minutes that I was with him here on this corner. Yep. And I think I've kind of compressed that into a memory, if yep. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. of just that, those couple of minutes are a memory. Okay. And I remember within that, you know, yeah, you know, seeing him look through the fence and, and, and having that conversation about the work, the work guys and the diggers. And, yep. and, um, and I remember myself jumping up the fence I was 13, it was 20 years ago, and like I said, without being disrespectful, it was an in insignificant then yeah. interaction conversation that I had with him. So he'd obviously thought about, you know, forensics and DNA and, and, and given an account. Um, and unfortunately, he was released on bail. We were absolutely gutted. I remember, um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time briefing the Crown Prosecution Service about you know, this individual that we wanted to charge him uh, with Ricky Nee's murder, they weren't as convinced as we were. Um, uh, and they decided to bail him, um, which was a bit of a low for the team. And I remember speaking to the team afterwards and reassuring everybody around, look, we just need to keep doing the right thing and get justice for this six-year-old lad uh, and his family um, and, and trying to pick them up, I guess, really. Um, uh, and they were all equally convinced that this was the guy. We just needed to just keep, keep, keep our focus really and just remain determined so he was released on bail he ended up going to a, a secure location in Northampton uh, and um, amazingly uh, within a week or two he decides to flee from the, uh, the, the, the bail hostel and goes to Portugal uh, and he goes to Portugal and basically um, outs himself uh, on the national UK media uh, that um, he is the Ricky Neve suspect, the police are trying to uh, uh, charge him, and that he is not responsible. 
and um, and he's out there. So yeah. of course we're, we're faced with this scenario now, Ollie, where you know we've got the national newspapers now effectively saying, "What are you going to do about this guy in Portugal that is saying he's a suspect, but you can't get up?" And, and effectively, he's taunting the police. That's what he was doing. You know, and there was lots of things he was he was saying and doing, which, you know, the family you can imagine were absolutely, uh, you know, they were so angry, so angry. And and this was an individual that, you know, we believed had killed six-year-old boy and behaving in this particular way. So we brought him back. We we eventually uh, were able to 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 bring him back. Um, we brought him back for a breach of his license. Um, uh, not the murder, because the way the legislation works for a European arrest warrant is that you need to be in a position to charge him and put before the court. Well, of course, the CPS, Crown Prosecution Service, had never agreed the charge. They felt that there wasn't sufficient at that time. Um, and so we brought him back for a breach of the of his licence by him being um, fleeing overseas. He'd automatically breached his licence. So we brought him back. Um uh, and that's what we did. And he went straight to, to prison. We then went through a long process with the Crown Prosecution Service. We, we ended up gathering more evidence uh, and seeking to uh, to charge him. And, um, uh, and, and it got to the stage after a number of conferences that they effectively sort of said, we don't think there's sufficient evidence. We... Uh, politely and respectfully sort of said to them that we don't agree with you we think there is sufficient evidence but of course we respect your decision making on it and um and that's where we were and i remember saying to um to my senior investigating officer at the time a guy called richard wall who was a detective chief inspector look the crown prosecution service this particular team the cps at that time were you know they were very very wary of charging uh, this this individual James Watson because they didn't really want a, a crack trial again and we tried all sorts you know we tried to bring in counsel and they they pushed back on us uh, and I'd said to him look if, if they're going to say no we've got a we've got an option to go down the the victim's right to review uh, as such so they formally dismissed it and said that we don't think there's a case we brought the family in. Uh, and sat them down and, and explained to them and said, look, the CPS have, have said that they don't think there's sufficient. We think there is. We would advise that you go down the victim's right to review. And the victim's right to review scheme is, a, is an independent scheme where families for serious crimes, they can they can make a referral to uh, an independent unit within the Crown Prosecution Service who will look at that particular case. Um, and, and that's what they did. We worked with them. We helped them uh, uh, fill out the forms in terms of where they, they went in. And the case went in there. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, thinking, you know, if somebody objectively looks at this case, they will see what we see. So so it went in. The family were, were, were you know, hoping that, that it would turn out something. We'd made a, a public statement um, with the CPS that, you know, that they'd said that there was no further action. We, we did deliberately didn't uh, undermine them because that just wouldn't be the right thing to do. Um, so roll on a year. Uh, and um, we get contacted by um, the Victims' Rights to Review uh, team, a, a lawyer in there, effectively saying, can we have some more documents, please? And we send them more documents. Uh, can we have these forensic documents as well? We send them forensic documents. And then literally I get a phone call from the lawyer in there, a guy called James Boyd, who effectively sort of says to me, Paul, we're really considering this case. Um, we're not happy that, that this, the right decision has been made by the Crown Prosecution Service, um, but we just need to take further advice from a from a, a, a barrister, and that's what they did. And then January twenty twenty one, I phone call. I'm in my office uh, at Walters, and um, so January twenty twenty, my office at Cambridgeshire Police Headquarters, and. Um, it's James Boyd who effectively rings me up and says that um, uh, this case has been looked at at the highest level in the Crown Prosecution Service. It's been reviewed and reviewed again. Um, uh, it's our view that there is sufficient evidence to charge James Watson with the murder of Ricky Neve. Wow. And, and he's charged. Uh, absolutely, he's charged. So he, he, at this time, Ollie, he's he's um, in on remand at a prison Um for breach of his license, he's charged with the murder of Ricky Neve. The publicity involved in it is 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 pretty pretty high, but it doesn't end there really because he's charged um, 
and we effectively then um, go through a, a legal process where he then challenges um, our extradition of him from Portugal uh, and we end up going to the High Court twice and, and that is turned down twice by the High Court uh, and the whole premise of his challenge was this really which is bizarre really is that because he'd been brought back from Portugal he argued under speciality legislation that in Portuguese law is that the criminal age of consent was 16 is that because he was brought back for a UK murder when he would have been 13 that you know he couldn't be dealt with for those crimes so imagine this scenario right got a it's, it's just bizarre and thankfully thankfully the the high court judges saw through it and um uh, and dismissed it so we had we had a pandemic as you will know we had covid-19 um i, I retired from policing in uh, 2020 but i'd always agreed with the family and with the constabulary that i would come back and finish off the case um of of ricky neve and um so in 2022 um january 2022 we start a uh, what would be a four-month trial at the old bailey court one yeah. uh, and you know i i by this time um i i had a around me people who had been involved in it from the outset people who had come back people who were you know absolutely into the the detail and we had a new cps team we had a brilliant council team a guy called john price qc now kc and uh, uh, and his his number two nathan resire and um and we went through a a four-month trial 151 witnesses um at the old bailey uh, lots of evidential challenges um, and we were getting to the stage where um, we were thinking you know and as the case went on our case was getting stronger it, you know it's a complete circumstantial case but it was getting stronger and um, lots of we had the media in there every day all the sort of like nationals in there reporting every day and um, the jury go out um, and they're out for around 36 hours and uh, and you know and it was becoming very very clear that they you know there were a couple of individuals in the jury that just weren't 100 percent certain and and we were thinking oh no this is going to be a, a hung jury um you know this is going to be you know what we're going to do is a hung jury and i remember phoning up the the sort of crown prosecution service lawyer at the time uh and speaking to the one of the chief officers back in Cambridge basically sort of saying, look, if this is a hung jury, which basically means the jury can't agree, therefore, you know, you can do another jury or the, the CPS can, can withdraw the charge, is that we must go again. And, and of course, all parties said, well, we'll go again. So, uh, and I remember the judge calling the jury in and sort of said, look, one last time, please do some thinking about it. Please sort of contemplate. We really want to reach a decision. And I remember going out one morning and um, going for a walk around the block and then getting a phone call um, from an excitable uh, colleague of mine, Jerry Waite, saying, mm. Paul, you need to come back in. There's going to be a verdict. Uh, wow. and, I remember, and I remember thinking to myself, thinking, oh, my God, what, what could this be? But in my mind, Ollie, I, couldn't, I thought there's no way the jury could find this individual not guilty because the evidence in my mind was overwhelming, excepting that, you know, any senior detective in a, in a case like this you've always got a you've got a bit of a tainted view because you're there aren't you charging mm. yeah. you're there the jury foreman stood up and effectively sort of said we find him guilty on a majority of 10 to 2. a key piece of evidence would eventually convict ricky's killer 20 years after the murder tests would find james watson's dna on ricky's clothes a man has been convicted of murdering six-year-old Ricky Neve more than 27 years ago. His killer, James Watson, who was 13 at the time, almost escaped justice. But a cold case review in 2015 finally linked him to the crime. Uh, and then within an hour, um, you know, within an hour, we phoned up Ruth Neve, the mother of Ricky, and, and explained to her what happened. Um, I'd phoned up other family members. And, we, and within that hour, I stood outside the old Bailey reading a statement uh, and thinking to myself, we finally did it. We finally brought this dangerous individual to justice, James Watson. And he, and he was a very, he was a dangerous individual. I mean, you know, within 
we had to wait a little while for him to be sentenced because of um, reports and, and such. And, mm. and he was eventually sentenced. But the irony of this is, is this as well, really, Ollie, is that because he was 13 years of age at the time, he could only be sentenced as a child. Uh, he, so he received life because you, you only receive life for murder. Um, but he could only be sentenced as a child. And the maximum sentence the judge could give him was 15 years minus his remand time. Um, so he got 15 years, which, you know, the family were, were you know, they, they accepted it. But you can see, had he been an adult, he would have, you know, he would have been at the absolute, you know, 30 plus years at the very least, I'd suggest, probably more than that. Um, but a really, but a really, a really, really challenging case in so many ways. And, I, you know, and I think, you know, I think the learning for the constabulary for policing actually around this is that, you know, you've got to keep an open mind. In this case, there was absolute organisational bias towards the, the, the mother. Um, and, and I have to say, there was absolutely no evidence of her involvement because, you know, if there was, we would have, we would have brought her to justice. And I remember having the conversation with her around this. And, you know, and, and for me, it was about, you know, forgetting that, Back in 1994, how they investigated murder was very, very different from today. Different standards, different levels of training, um, and they just got it wrong. They got it wrong, you know. Um, uh, and and that case now is that you know that was the, the sort of biggest unsolved inquiry in Cambridge Constabulary's history. It's one of the one of the sort of biggest unsolved in the UK at the time. Um, and for me personally, it was an eight-year deployment as such. Um, but I have to say. It, this was all about the team. The team were absolutely outstanding involved in mm. this case. They never gave up, Ollie. The determination, tenacity and professional curiosity at all levels it was in abundance, very similar to many, many men and women today serving across UK policing. So very, very proud of all of them, really. It, interested to understand whether that 1994 team in any capacity kind of got in touch to congratulate you know the the say the modern day team the most recent team for the success they had or was it something they just weren't prepared to get involved in at all i i i felt there was a, there was a couple of in, there was a couple of people who were around at that time who reached out and effectively said well done thank you for bringing justice mm, for yeah. or ricky neve but there you know there were a couple of others in there that you know kept their head down and i can understand that i guess really is that you know there was a because there was a lot of media focus on them as well there was a lot of media attention around you know yeah. who were these individuals and i and i you know there was lots of things that were banded around by people around corruption and around you know this was a deliberate attempt to you know to to sort of charge um the, the mother um, and I and I remember investigating all. I investigated it to the nth degree. There was never any of that, Ollie. They just got it wrong. They got it wrong. They were they were tunnel they were tunnel vision. They were focused on the mother. They didn't think beyond. They didn't. They weren't. They weren't used to dealing with this level of homicide. Uh, and they didn't probably have the you know the training or the the sort of like the, the you know the things that we had in in terms of modern day. Uh, investigation I guess really so you know so this is why I will say to people now is that you know you've got to keep an open mind and you've got to you've, you've got to make be, make sure you're happy yourself you know don't listen to individuals you've got to check yourself and make sure that that is the case because you know I, I've got no doubt there will be other cases where we probably have got it wrong across UK policing you know having done so much throughout your 32 years um in the police and obviously your, your armed forces career is that one of your and it's a, it's a difficult one because obviously you're investigating the murder of a child so it's 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 a difficult one in terms of is it one of your most successful moments in your career yeah i mean i i, I think this is probably one of the the most testing uh investigations i've ever been involved in i mean i'm involved in yeah. lots of uh, murders and, and serious and organised crime and serious cases and I for eight years I was involved in this uh, Ollie from start to finish and I, and I have to say there were times where you know personally I was challenged um, at, at levels within the organisation you know around you know have you got it right you're doing the right thing um, and also externally as well by the media by the families you know, and I understand all that. I guess, you know, as a police officer, that's what you, you expect to do. But I have to say this, 
this would this probably for me is probably you know the most challenging investigation in so many different levels not just in terms of managing a murder but the political side of it dealing with a family you know dealing with former police officers you know just in terms of dealing with chief officers it, it, it had ever dealing with extradition dealing with you know the high court the old bailey it had everything in this you know and um but very satisfying and on you know for me it was, this was my every detective has one last job ollie this was mine uh, and i'm glad it's, it was this i'm glad that we got the result that we did you extended your policing retirement by several months um to remain as bedfordshire cambridge hearts's covid19 goal commander we haven't spoken about throughout the series the impact covid19 had on policing and the challenges that it presented in terms of supporting other um, public services in terms of the, you know, having to um, carry out patrols to identify people that were potentially breaching COVID rules and laws, which came in quite quickly in terms of trying to stem the spread of this horrific virus. Um, What, you know, You've, you've led incredible detective teams and teams more broadly across so many different investigative areas. And then to step into this almost sort of crisis management risk role, operationally overseeing you know 20 departments, over 5,000 people as a goal commander for a Triforce collaborative function in terms of this COVID-19 response. What a, what a change in direction, albeit still seeing overseeing a lot of people. But ultimately, the objective is very, very different from what you're used to. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I can say this is one of the most unusual uh, experiences in my policing career and certainly nothing I expected. You know, most people who are, um, you know, toward months away from retiring, you know, people start, you know, slowing down a little bit. But I, I, I so, so, so in 2020, um, the pandemic hit the UK February, March 2020. I was due to retire uh, in April uh, of 2020. Uh, and I was the, at the time, I was the Assistant Chief Constable for uh, Bedfordshire, Cambridge and Hertford Joint Protective Services. Uh, and I, and and it was, is it was the incident that happened, this, and this isn't just in police, of course, ev- everywhere was unprecedented. But of course, in policing, we still need to provide a service. And um, and almost immediately, I was selected as the sort of goal commander. The three chief constable teams had effectively come into me and said, Paul, uh, will you lead as gold for the collaborated units, which, as you say, is about you know 5,000 people across three counties, um, 20-odd departments, you know, from armed policing to major crime to roads policing to criminal justice to... HR to professional standards, and um, and I have to say, um, so unprecedented, and th- and this was the times where nobody really knew about the virus, nobody knew what how we would deal with it, how we'd respond to it. So our almost immediate response was, you know, in terms of police, this is UK policing, was that you know uh, unless you're absolute core policing, people will be working from home, we would keep them away. Is that you know. People had to wear masks. People had to behave in a particular way. And 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 being the goal commander on this, my role was to ensure that policing continued. So, you know, I remember, you know, setting up the command structure for this. And it was just like something we'd never experienced before because there were no policies. There were no procedures. There were no rules. We didn't really fully understand the virus. Mm. We, didn't, we At this time, we didn't even know that there would be a, a, a cure to it, a jab to it, you know, and, and new legislation brought in by the government in terms of, you know, that, you know, you, you had to stay at home. Uh, and if you if you didn't, then you were committing a criminal offence. Uh, and even to the point of Ollie, I remember, you know, um, trying to trying to resolve things like PPE uh, with with our frontline uh, officers. And, you know, what, you know, and, and this was the art, this, you know, and, and this was the sort of like the, the irony of it all really is that, you know, there was a lot of focus on the the NHS quite rightly because they were doing a fantastic job. But policing as well, I have to say, the men and women involved in policing were also doing a fantastic job. They were turning out day in, day out to instance and jobs. 
um, uh, you know, with the same fears and, and worries of everyone else around COVID-19. And we were sending them out in, you know, in masks and gloves. Uh, and they were doing their very, very best to do what needed to be done. And they did it day in, day out and never moaned. They just got on with it. And, and I remember, you know, trying to agree in terms of like, you know, what PPE you, you would wear. And, and we were forever, you know, I'd be drawn in as a sort of gold commander to to national conversations across uh, national policing around, you know, how this is our response. This is how we were going to deal with it. And I remember one weekend that the rules on PPE had changed you know, three times over one weekend about what police officers needed to wear, you know, when they went to to jobs and responding to jobs. And of course, we had the the challenge as well. And this, this wasn't in policing, this was also in the NHS, is that we didn't have enough PPE. You know, we went through this 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 scenario where, you know, I, I can remember that, you know, we were procuring our own PPE um, off the back of, you know, that we needed to make sure that we, you know, that we were sort of supporting and, 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 and helping our own staff, really. Uh, and, and so, of course, this went on for for, for a number of months. Um, you know, lots of people worried. Sadly, we, we had a couple of people who, who passed away through COVID as well and, and trying to resolve that and deal with, with, um, with, with colleagues and support colleagues. Uh, and it was a period of uncertainty where we had to keep the show on the road. And as the gold commander, my role, is to sort of like, you know, set the strategic direction to make sure that, you know, all the, the policy and plans and the objectives are being followed through, is that we we keep delivering our core policing mission uh, across the three counties. I had to do a bit of politics as well, because, of course, I work across three chief officer teams uh, and and just making sure that we're, we're doing what needs to be done, but also looking after the staff. You know, the staff were the most important thing in this, making sure that they were OK, they were supportive, they felt cared for, you know, that we were responding to any of their worries and concerns. Uh, and that's what we did for a number of months, uh, you know, as, as sort of gold commander. And, and I remember, Ollie, with this, I was supposed to retire in April, as I said, and, you know, funerals were cancelled and uh, my own retirement due was cancelled. There were, you know, there were weddings cancelled. It was at a time when, you know, people were really, really worried uh, and, and and uncertain and, and I remember agreeing agreeing in, in the end I, I stayed on for a couple of months beyond my retirement day uh, to remain as gold which made sense in terms of continuity uh, and and thank goodness that eventually you know there was a there was a sort of cure found really but I, but I have to say is that the men and women involved in uh, in in the sort of policing response and this not just police officers but police staff as well, they were absolutely fantastic. They, they were unseen, unsung heroes and heroines behind the scenes that, you know, did a fantastic job to ensure that core policing remained uh, day in, day out. Well, the, the tragic thing is also, is, and I, I don't know if many people be aware of this, but 34 police officers and staff died from COVID in the UK during the pandemic. And they were figures released by the National Police Chiefs Council, which is quite a, a staggering figure and, and it would obviously be incredibly upsetting to their colleagues and staff as you say your priority was staff safety in terms of you know PPE and gloves and at the same time was there frustration in terms of the laws which were coming out in terms of you know you've got day-to-day -day responsibilities but then you've also got these these new laws coming in which you've got to try and implement in terms of people staying at home and you know trying to effectively you know being able to issue um on-the-spot penalty notices. A lot of complication around this stuff. Totally, totally. And if you remember, when it was brought out, it was brought out very, very quickly. And, um, you know, and, 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 and so, of course, you're now, you're now asking police officers, men and women, who are, who are used to dealing with incidents and dealing with crime and dealing with antisocial behaviour and domestic abuse incidents and serious crime, is that they're now issuing tickets to ordinary members of the public who are out walking about when they shouldn't be. You know, it's a time when the government were insisting that people remained at home. You had, if you recall, you, you were allowed out for a little bit of exercise and then you were allowed out in certain groups. And the laws kept changing time and time again. And 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 I have to say that, that there probably was some frustration from police officers at the time because, you know, they couldn't keep up with the law changes. And and I and I've got some sympathy for the government with this, I guess, really, because they didn't know they were trying to deal with a you know, a, 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 not a crime in action, but an incident in action. This was happening lifetime. It was changing day in, day out, yeah. uh, and, and things were moving so quickly. But I have to say that the you know the police involved in this is that 
you know, they were issuing tickets in the most bizarre circumstances that, you know, a year ago, if, if you'd have said to them, this is what you're going to be doing, they just wouldn't have believed you. No one would have believed you. You know, we're going to, we're going to be, you know, issuing fixed penalty notices for people that are walking down about and they, they need to remain at home. Otherwise, they're committing an offence. And so it was a really difficult time, I think, you know. And of course, you know, and the different interpretations around what it means and what the, you know, if there's any sort of like, you know, exemptions. And, you know, of course, what followed on from that is that, you know, you know, there'd be parties and there'd be people who would deal with. But I have to say, and you know, and, and this often doesn't get reported on massively, the, the police approach generally was advice and guidance. Police didn't go out there just to issue tickets in terms of, you know, you're going to have a ticket because you've breached the sort of COVID legislation. The, the guidance that was always given to police officers at the time is that, you know, you advise and you educate and you try and reassure people. And, 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 and that's what happened in the vast majority. It was only the absolute prolific offenders who ended up getting the ticket to just, you know, to complete disregard for the rules, so to speak. Um, but I have to say it was a time when UK police and they absolutely stood up, every one of them, you know, all the men and women involved in, in UK policing behind the scenes, they stood up, they turned up and delivered that core policing mission 24 seven and never stopped. And, and they put their own selves at safety in terms of many, many times to do it. How do you keep morale up during a period of such uncertainty? It, do you know what? It's I mean, I I used to communicate quite regularly with um, with my teams, and and I would um, with really really you know I I good sort of media leads, uh, and I would do things like for example I'd record videos and send them to them, uh, and I would um, you know do things that would would try and increase morale. One one of the one of the best things we ever did, and I, and I remember getting in trouble for this actually is that um uh, one of the first things i i did when i set up my command structure i realized there were a couple of people who were at home who couldn't who were shielded because of their medical condition uh, and they couldn't do anything so i remember sort of agreeing a, a bit of a budget uh, and um, and basically getting a load of welfare packs uh, made up and, and within these welfare packs there were things like for example you know, uh, you know, hand sanitizer, sweets. There was like, you know, <clears throat> there might have been something, uh, a, a sort of voucher to listen to a, a podcast. Um, there'd be some stuff in there for reading. <clears throat> there'd be some guidance in there around what you could do. And they were generally welfare packs. And I remember getting issuing them out to all of my teams, individuals across the um, the collaboration. And um, <clears throat> and I remember getting challenged by. Um, one of the chief officers from another force who effectively said, why have you done that? And, and I sort of said, because the actual feedback I've got in terms of morale is that it's made a difference. It's helped. It's a little thing, but it's made a big, big difference. <clears throat> and I have to say the staff feedback that we got from those little gestures and, and sort of, you know, was really, really positive. And, um, and I remember the challenge from the, uh, the the chief officer and sort of said, I'm really sorry, but my decision, goal commander, that's what I've done. It's done now. I'm really sorry about that. And the irony of it is, Ollie, is that I don't think that they were particularly bothered I'd done it. I think they were just bothered that they hadn't done it in the first instance to their own people with such. So there's there were lots of things that, that we did, you know, in terms of um, communication and phoning people and, and just checking on people. And we, you know, we had a whole command, as part of our command structure, we had lots of things in there around just checking on people's welfare and well-being all the way through this this really trying time really i i say it in in just about every episode that we've covered um you know policing is an incredibly intense job it's it's not a career it's a bit of a lifestyle really in terms of you know family have to live around the highs the lows the days and weeks that you're away from home in terms of carrying out these really complex investigations um Equally, you have an incredibly supportive family network that sits behind you. You must be um, incredibly fortunate to have that support and be able to lean back on wife and children and, 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 and understand some of the sacrifices they've made for you to be as successful as you have been. Uh, uh, Ollie, I'm, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I've been very fortunate that I've had a very, you know, loving family. I've got some good friends uh, in and out of the job, um, you know, who have been brilliant uh, and you know they've been there for me day in day out and also you know I, I you know it's worth recognizing that you know they're affected as well because you know when you're late home from from dinner you're not there to the, the parties it should be going to 
you know you're not there on the sports days when you when you need to be there you know and and they've lived through that and i have to say they've been they've been absolutely fantastic but the 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 irony as well ollie is that i've got three three children and um and none of them were really ever interested in policing and, and within a year of retiring my eldest son decided that he wanted to be a police officer uh, and and is now a police officer never never interested at all and so like now i've 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 got the fortunate position where i'm able to support him and give him advice and guidance and and try and reassure him about how things are really but family's really important friends are important you know somebody people need something there to support them uh, in in policing you know and 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 i've been very fortunate that i've had all of that all the way through my career and equally, your incredibly important leadership and work continues today. You're, if, correct me if I'm wrong, sitting within the Security Industry Authority as the Director of Inspections Enforcement, which has got a lot going on at the moment with some very significant issues and events which have taken place in London in the last few months. Um, so your your post-policing career appears to be just as busy. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I so I retired in 2020. I never really, the only sort of job I wanted to finish off was the Ricky Need murder, but I I, I, which I did, but I ended up um, then leading on a number of sensitive reviews for the National Police Chiefs Council, generally, very much around homicide and, and legacy type stuff. Um, yeah. I, I, I lectured to the College of Policing um, now as a uh, to see detectives on 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 courses. I used to lead in, across policing on PIP four strategic investigation, and I and as you, and I and 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 I sort of been drifting drifted back into public service working for the home office or an arm for probably the home office, the security industry authority, where we're working very, very closely with the police service and other agencies in terms of um, public protection and, and public safety. And I really enjoy it, really enjoy uh, passing on my experience, learning new stuff as well uh, and working with, you know, across public service, trying to keep people safe and make a difference. If you, could wind back the clock would you change anything or would you do it all again do you know i'd do it all again i've absolutely loved uh my policing career and i you know I, i've absolutely loved it i mean I, I know some people you know don't always feel like that i've loved it i i i'm very fortunate to to have ended up where where i've ended up with i've done everything that i wanted to do as a detective as a police officer um i've always said to people you know you know, if you go in there uh, into policing and, and try your hardest, do your best, work hard and good things will happen. And that's what's happened to me, I think. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I'm very, very fortunate uh, and um, uh, I've got no regrets, uh, no regrets. Loved every day and every year. Thank you, Ollie. What's the best advice you'd give someone joining, for instance, your son? What's the best advice you can give someone who's going into the police in terms to make it the best and most successful career that they can have and equally de- dealing with the challenges which confront policing at the moment in terms of people questioning the integrity of police? I, I, I would say to people now, get, p- policing is a vocation that, you know, it's a way of life uh, and go in there with an open mind. Um, be be your own person. Whether you know whether you're a man or a woman, be your own person. Be an authentic police officer. Don't be a clone. Uh, don't follow the crowd. Um, work hard. Do the right thing. You know, and 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 people will see what what needs to be seen. Uh, and, and you know, people recognise your value and your worth as such. You know, and, and and I think policing is a fantastic career. I mean, it really, really is. It's one of those. It's you know the things you see the experiences, the people you meet, you know, the, the, the things you get involved in is unlike anything, anything, uh, you know, across any other industry, you know. Uh, and I would say that go in there with an open mind, enjoy it and do everything you can do to make it as fulfilling as you can. Help people, support people. It's about helping victims uh, and doing the right thing. Uh, and it will be a fulfilling career, I've got no doubt. Well, Paul Forward, the last hour and 50 minutes has been quite incredible. We've covered some fascinating investigations and some incredible work throughout your 32 years of public service, which is still continuing today. And I think on behalf of um, my 
colleagues and I on the podcast. We thank you ever so much for your service, your leadership and your determination to support victims right till the very end. It's, it has such a huge impact and I have no doubt over your career that you would have touched the lives of many, many, many people and, and demonstrated that you know you are, you are ordinary people doing an extraordinary job and going that extra mile to ensure that we can meet the needs and expectations of the public, which is ever-changing and ever-evolving, which you have done so well throughout your career so thank you ever so much and we certainly wish you the best in your post-policing career which as i say appears to be as busy as ever and uh we we, we hope you have some enjoyable years in the next chapter of your uh, professional life uh, and thank you ollie thank you very humble to be uh, be be invited onto your 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 podcast and to just share some experiences and um uh, and very humble to be you know to be part of the police service and and day in day out you know, there's some fantastic men and women who are doing a brilliant job 24-7, day in, day out, and they, they should never forget that. So thank you very, very much. I'm very grateful. Thank you. No, thank you, Paul. We wish to take a moment to stop and remember the life of young Ricky Neve, taken from his family and friends so young and with so much of life still to lead. It is a testament to the team of police officers and staff that were able to achieve this outcome and we thank them for their dedication and hard work to make this happen. Thank you. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced.